Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. Hello and welcome, Marlo. How are we all? Hello to the web as well. Thank you for joining me. My name's Sam Sethi. It's Wednesday, yes, and it's our business and technology technology show i'm joined today by two guests uh one is a very good friend of mine matt hodges long which we'll introduce you to shortly and we're also joined by dr al pinkerton now al is a researcher and a fellow at the royal holloway uh college uh he's written some amazing work about global britain and post-brexit and the effect of the commonwealth we're going to be talking about what effect does politics and technology have together so we're going to break this show into three parts first of all we're going to introduce al and find out about what he's doing and understand some of his research work um matt has been working with al al was also the ppc parliamentary perspective candidate for the lib dems down in surrey against hair gove as i call him um he uh basically uh, unfortunately didn't quite make it but what he did do was change the way that he used technology to actually build up a very big audience raise a lot of money through crowdfunding we're going to find out how they did that the second part of the show obviously we want to look at what's going to be happening post-brexit and i think uh, al's got a very interesting perspective on that given it's his area of specialization and research and then the third part i want to break it down is look at broadly we've got the 2020 elections coming up in the united states and again mark zuckerberg has failed um to do anything about the political ads that are going to be putting out false commentary and information um and he seems that fine by it and i just clearly don't understand why so we're going to just ask these experts what they think about it but also we're going to have a broader conversation about the use of technology uh, and its effect maybe on the 21st century and how we might be voting um, and what that means for information or information dissemination but first and foremost let me introduce him al how are you i'm very well thank you thank you for having me i'm excited oh, to be pleasure here. thank you for joining us matt how are you i'm good sam Good, 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 good. Al, look, explain to me in better terms than I did, what do you do today? So, uh, as you rightly said, I work at Royal Holloway, which is part of the University of London. Uh, I am an associate professor of a subject called geopolitics. So, basically, I spend my life either teaching my students or researching the, the, the challenges that we all face in the modern world. Everything from climate change to shifting international relations to the movement of power and influence from west to east, uh, the melting of the polar ice caps and the way that that's unleashing particular tensions. But one of my particular areas of interest has been looking at the British Overseas Territories, the Commonwealth, and the challenges that are posed by Brexit. Okay, uh, and Matt, you've been on the show before. You you have a your own company. You, you're the CEO of a company called Track My Risks. Um, but you're not here in that perspective today. What role are you here today, would you say? Well, I work with Al on the campaign, as you mentioned. And um, one of the things I was keen on doing is bringing some technology knowledge into um, what is quite a traditional sort of grassroots campaigning activity so sort of looking at how can we use technology to actually deliver exceptional performance um and bring some of that knowledge in and actually you know and, and what got me into this whole escapade apart from meeting alan really getting on well with him uh was the um what was going on with my clients in terms of when we were advising them on risk and how i could see two years ago the decisions they were making as a result of what was coming down the, the track from a brexit perspective what impact that would have on the country. Um, so I felt, you know, I don't want to look back at this and think, did I actually exercise my voice? And I, I really regret not being more overt in my thinking at the time of the referendum. So for me, it was about atonement as well of, you know, getting back and 
putting something in and trying to sort of um, steer the, the car away from the cliff. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> before we get into what you two got up to, <laughs> let's say last winter, um, how did you get into what you're doing today at Royal Holloway? Where, where, where's the background for Al? How did, how did it all start? Yeah, well, I mean, I went to university like many people do as an undergraduate. I, I was at the University of St. Andrews. Um, I, I was there studying geography and we had fantastic lecturers, tutors in political geography. I, I learned far more about the complexities of the political world, the way that um, we need to think historically, but also very contemporary terms, the way that power moves and shifts. That then led to a master's degree and then a, a PhD, where I spent a lot of my time in, in India and in the Falkland Islands and in Latin America studying uh, the history of the BBC World Service and the way that it negotiated post-colonial transition. It changed Britain's, it, it traced and shaped Britain's relationship with, in the case of the Falkland Islands, um, a, a colony that became an overseas territory and then in the context of India, uh, a dominion that then became a close ally, but also um, a kind of an aggravated partner uh, at particular times during the 20th century. So I was working with the BBC correspondent in India. I was working in the National Archives there and effectively charting India's uh, kind of post-colonial uh, emergence as a state. So all of these things kind of brought to my attention big questions of, of power, um, of, ec of economic might, of shifting politics. And, and that then led, led to my more current, my more recent research projects. Uh, and give us a little bit of flavour of what they are. Yeah, they're pretty diverse, um, okay. you know, which is exciting for me because, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'd get a bit bored if I were just doing the same thing all the time. Um, so I've got a few things kind of on the go at the moment, some of which uh, I think would speak really nicely to, to the tone of this, this programme and they involve uh, particular kind of technologies. Um, I've been involved in a really big research project that's just coming to fruition now, um, looking at the history of no man's land as, as a concept. So no man's land is a term we think very, cl very closely related to the First World War, that space between the trenches. But one of the things that perhaps we don't understand is that, that no man's land has existed in the English language for nearly a thousand years. Oh, okay. And uh, it emerged in the, in the Doomsday Book. It refers to spaces that are, uh, that are uncontrolled or contested between sites of power, for example, between different parishes a thousand, a thousand years ago. But um, we've been working with Google on this amazing project where we've been digitizing archives and resources. We've been looking at maps and poetry and, and ancient documents. Um, we've been working all, all around the world to try and bring together this digital project looking at the history of No Man's Land. So you can see that now. It has gone live on Google Arts and Culture, uh, which is an amazing educational platform that Google uh, supports. Um, one of the parts of that project that was most exciting is we created virtual reality documentaries. Um, so we visited a number of key sites and made VR documentaries where you can put on a VR headset and we, we will take you to no man's lands, to places that might otherwise be inaccessible in your everyday lives. So we, perhaps we'll come on and talk about more about that as we, yeah. as we go on. Um, but I also work, uh, I've, uh, I've just had a book on radio published, looking at the history of radio as a medium, telling its story as an incredibly important natural phenomenon, but also a man-made phenomenon. 
There's a lot of politics in there because, of course, going back to the early 20th century, there were lots of concerns about the way that radio could be used to influence. Well, FDR, famously in America. Absolutely, yeah. And, and he used radio amazingly well with his famous fireside chats. But there were other people that, that um, the American population were far more suspicious about. Radicalised preachers, for example. They still are, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and they're they still be. there. But, you know, all, going all the way back to the 1930s, there were fears about somebody called Fa- Father Coughlin, who was... Was, um, he was a Roman Catholic priest, but who was effectively preaching the uh, emergent Nazi um, kind of ideology on American radio. And there were grave concerns about the kind of influence that he could have and that radio could have on the minds of the American population who seemed to be susceptible to that kind of message, uh, that message making. And of course, we see parallels with, with Facebook and, and social so, media I was say, I mean, today. Isn't it just a case of new technology, new fear? Yeah. And we can look back, though, to, to the way that, that people resolved some of those fears in the 1930s and perhaps can see lessons uh, in, in the present day um, as well. Uh, you, Matt mentioned uh, a recent campaign. Um, uh, you know, as well as doing my, my everyday academic work, uh, I also stood as a parliamentary candidate for the first time. Um, I decided that over the summer I would join the Liberal Democrat Party. Uh, in Surrey Heath, they were looking for a candidate to stand against Michael Gove. And somehow or other, I managed to get myself selected. Um, and into the drive, the driving seat. Should I say congratulations? There. I think I should. Yes. Well, it was an amazing experience. It's a very different thing to being an academic. You know, there's a particular rhythm and tone and register to my to my work as an academic. This was fundamentally different to that. I had to learn to communicate in different ways and on different platforms. But you know, the two things are also related because I guess the third big research project that I'm involved in at the moment is looking at the challenges of Brexit and indeed the changing nature of the modern world and how countries like Britain are going to cope with those kinds uh, of changes. Um, I I often work in British overseas territories. I've spent far more time than I should have done working in places like Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands and and, and other places. And what really got me interested in Brexit was the fact that those particular overseas territories were screaming out to Britain to remain in the EU. Oh, really? Yeah. But their voices weren't heard. Uh, no, they weren't heard. Uh, and, and of course, Gibraltar's voice uh, in very real terms wasn't heard because, of course, they were given a vote in the EU referendum and famously 90, what, 97% of all Gibraltarians voted to remain in the EU. Um, and yet people who did vote for Brexit often hold up the overseas territories as some kind of great marker of British prestige in the world. People often describe themselves as friends of the overseas territories whilst also voting for Brexit. Um, It seems a curious kind of friendship to vote for something, to advocate for something that is so uh, going to damage the the people that you consider to be your friends. So just very, as you understand it, implicitly, what would you say Gibraltar's future is? Will it will it get added to Spain, and w- will the rock be added, or will it will it remain as a British territory? Well, yeah, because it, it, it's, it's juxtaposed. It's always wanted to be a British territory, yeah, but it now clearly wants to remain in the EU. So it, it is really torn, I guess. It is torn. But then if you look at Scotland, Scotland looks to be torn uh, as well. I mean, this is perhaps one of the ironies of that phrase that we were told time after time after time during the 2016 uh, referendum campaign, take back 
take back control. But what have we taken back control of? Was there control to take back from anybody? And ultimately, what are we? What have we been left with at the end of it? You have Scottish nationalism running rampant in Scotland. Northern Ireland was famously thrown under the bus. Overseas territories like uh, the Falkland Islands and Gibraltar are going to be very significantly economically damaged by uh, by Brexit. But, but people don't want to hear that. No, because. The simple phrase, take back control, tells them that any time you put an argument up, people suddenly turn around, yes, but we're just taking back control. And after that, everything will be fine. It's the ostrich mentality. Bury your head in the sound, take back control, and when you pop your head back up, hey, presto, it's all going to be magically fixed. Yeah, the problem is there are no magical solutions to international kind of border conventions, for example. So currently 20,000 people every single day cross the border from Spain into Gibraltar in order to keep Gibraltar going. Um, Gibraltar isn't big enough to house all of the people that work in and support the Gibraltarian economy. People live in Spain and travel over every day. To keep that border open is going to rely on Britain and the European Union um, coming to some kind of deal about a certain kind of movement across the border. Um, Otherwise, we will hear about the five or six hours uh, queues to get across the border again. And what does that then do to the Gibraltarian economy, which which is pretty fragile? I fully expect Spain to close that border, to make it uh, an imbuggerance to the Gibraltarians so that they go, oh, you know what, just give up. Let's just join there because economically we're just being turned over. Well, of course, you would do that. I mean, if that if that is the negotiating tool that you have in your armory, yeah. of course you are going you are you are going to do that. And I'm sure, quite sure Britain would seek to do the same thing if the positions were were reversed. You use the tools at your disposal, and Spain it will be entirely entitled to close that border as they have done at particular moments um, in in the past. I think the real question for the United Kingdom is: Are we willing? That do you remember the three the amazing three hundred and fifty million pounds that was Going to, on the side that of the magic bus. money bus, yeah. the magic money that was all going to go to the NHS. Well, of course, now we re- now we realise that there's going to be a whole host of different parts of the economy that are going to have to get propped up after Brexit because we are going to be economically disadvantaged. And it's not just the UK; it's also our overseas territories. So, you know, Gibraltar's economy could be fundamentally undermined. The First Minister of Gibraltar referred to Brexit as an existential crisis. So, you know, he was advocating for the same kind of position that you are, which is that this could fundamentally affect the future of Gibraltar as an overseas territory. And people are already thinking in imaginative ways about new kind of sovereignty uh, arrangements, potentially. It's deeply unpopular in Gibraltar because despite the fact that Britain has kind of let them down in this situation, they still feel that their identity is British. But, but how, how, how far would you have to go for a compromise to be contemplated on that point? Um, the Falkland Islands are really interesting because they are not a member of the European Union directly, unlike Gibraltar. But because Britain is a member of the EU, they get associate EU member status, which means that they can sell their extraordinary amount of seafood product into the European Union uh, with no customs. And that will all no, stop, will it? Unless Britain negotiates a deal that explicitly allows uh, that that fish to continue to enter the EU. And, and let's face it, it's mostly squid. And that squid goes to <laughs> Portugal and it goes to Spain. Right. Yeah. And at the moment it can flow freely into uh, into the EU without customs uh, or, or tariff barriers. Um, and that props up the, the Falkland Islands economy. If that stops, Britain has a question to ask itself. And that is, are we willing to plug the financial gap that that then leaves? 
Because that £350 million that was promised to the NHS is going to get carved up in multiple ways. And the question for the British people is, are you going to be happy with the way that that money has to be spent because of the implications of the vote that was taken? I, I just don't think people care, right? <clears throat> Maggie well, Thatcher famously used yeah. the Falklands to prop up her failing government. Yeah. It was nothing to do with the, the desire to keep the Falklands. It was just a good distraction. A bit like Trump did recently on, you know, December, January the 2nd, you know, let's start a war with Iran because I'm, I'm basically am being impeached, so let me just do a deflect left. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the one thing I do remember about the Falklands was that it was just the territorial rock that you could maintain in order to keep territorial advantage over the um, uh, oil that's down there in the um, uh, Atlantic, not the Atlantic, the... the yeah, no, you're right, the South Atlantic. Yeah. 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 So it, it's fundamentally, that's the only reason we still maintain the Falklands from this distance. But as I know, being an ex-military man myself, we couldn't invade the Isle of Wight, let alone re-invade the Falklands anymore. We haven't got enough. We don't, we haven't, we've got a carrier with no planes. I mean, that's fundamentally our position. We have one carrier that can go down there, but no planes would be on it. I think we've got a few planes now. Have we? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. 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 That lasts about a week a then. A few. <laughs> but somebody did say to me, a good friend of mine's a senior army officer, and he sort of reminded me over Christmas that you can fit the entire British army inside Twickenham Rugby Stadium yeah, and have 000. some seats yeah, left over. 7,000. Pretty yeah. scary, really. Yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah it, it's awful. As an ex-para, um, yeah. having seen how many regiments have been closed and yeah. the history of the army, it's just awful. And, and to be honest, you know... Um, yeah, our position in the world. Anyway, I, I shouldn't go on because I could get on real soapbox about that one. Now, <laughs> back to back to what we were talking about. Yeah. So, okay, look. So, we are in a post-Brexit Britain. There is nothing that any of us can do. The three of us probably are Remainers at heart. That's why we're all, and I have to be open and declare I was a Liberal Democrat as well. Um, but we lost, right? We fundamentally lost. That That is the position. Now, you've written a piece about uh, Global Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that really mean? Is it in the post-Brexit Boris world that we're going to live in, what does was global britain look like and what does brexit look like i think the nobody the truth is that nobody knows the answer to that question yet but it's all up in the air and it's currently a term and it's an idea it's a narrative about the future of britain that is being hotly contested um and it's being contested by lots of different organizations so one of the leading authorities or one of the leading organizations that is promoting the idea of a global britain is an organization called the henry jackson society they're a center-right think tank they're based uh, in in London, and they are promoting the idea of a global a global Britain, and this is apparently going to be in a, a United Kingdom that is deeply internationalist, that's outward looking. I think what they really mean by that is far more closely aligned with the United States um, rather than rather than Europe. Um, the fifty third state. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it could very well be exactly that that kind of model um, and seeing far more close um, military allegiance and military ties with the US, far more interoperability uh, there. But fundamentally, what they're, what they're basing this idea on is a rejection of, of a kind of us looking to Europe and looking instead across the the North Atlantic, um, and they've got some kind of curious ideas. They're they're a big fan, for example, of maintaining the British overseas territories as literally a global footprint for Britain, for investing them in particular uh, kinds of ways, uh, militarily, but also uh, but also economically. 
But it's also about Britain being willing to project itself and to assert itself on on the global stage. One of the most radical proposals that somebody from the Henry Jackson Society uh, published just last week, there was a big editorial, I think it was in the Times newspaper, was... um, it was rather reminiscent of something that the Americans did in the early 20th century when they sent their, their, the fleet, the American fleet, the naval fleet around the world as part of this kind of big military uh, maritime expedition to show American power at the start of the, 21st, uh, the 20th century. What the Henry Jackson Society are proposing now for the launch of Global Britain is the literal launch of our fleet, such as it is, two aircraft carriers and a few destroyers and frigates and things like that, with maybe a couple of planes on board, yeah. around the world as a show of a re-emergent British might and are willing to project ourselves into to uh, territories, of theatres. I am struggling on that one. Well, but but this is the kind of thing that's being spoken about. So when people use the term Global Britain, it might sound quite innocent to some, it might sound meaningless to others, but people are attempting to put flesh on those bones in ways that many of us might find actually quite troubling. Okay, now Global Britain to me, it, there was a leaked white paper in the middle of the Brexit, which was called Empire 2.0, yeah. which is what Global Britain sounds like to me. It sounds like, let's go and go back to the Commonwealth, knock on the door and go, hello, Commonwealth, do you remember us? We were the ones who raped and pillaged you. We're back, um, we're going to rape and pillage you again. But this time, will you be nice to us and let us do it? Yeah. And I just think that is exactly the strategy they're looking for. And, I, you know, um, I just don't quite get... You know, the, I always say the Commonwealth is the world's worst named thing. It's not common and it, it wasn't wealth. It was one way and it went this way. Um, and so I don't think, you know, I, I, for those who don't know me, I've got an Indian background heritage. And, um, you know, when you read some of the stuff that, you know, you know the British got up to, uh, it's frightening what we did. You know, um, the Middle East with the Ottoman Empire, how we broke that all up. Well, a drunken Churchill broke that all up with the famous Churchill's hiccup. I mean, what they did in India, I mean, Mountbatten was absolutely an extreme Nazi. You know, his wife had an affair with Nehru, so he decided to split India into Pakistan and India as his revenge and killed 10 million people in the process. I mean, this is the history that we don't teach. So when people say global Britain, Mm. you know, it in my head just simply says Empire 2.0. You, you're right in saying that there was there was a document released, of course, well, I think accidentally released, called Empire, Empire 2.0. And you're right, it does it does reveal perhaps something of the underlying ideology, uh, the philosophy behind the idea of, of Global Britain. A lot of people have talked about, you know, now that we're leaving the European Union, this is our opportunity to re-engage with the Commonwealth. A lot of people feel, actually, in the 1970s, when we joined the European Union, that we had turned our backs on the Commonwealth. And this is an opportunity for us to re-engage. The question, the problem that we face is that, well, we have to ask ourselves, do do the Commonwealth want us to re-engage after 40 plus years of of disengagement? Um, The answer to that might very well be no. Equally, in the modern the modern integrated economy, is it sensible to think that you can run an economy by by making closer trading relations with um, Australia, which is... Eight to 10,000 miles away, or, or New Zealand, does India have the appetite to re-engage with Britain that that's, seems to be coming to India with a begging bowl now for, yes. a, for a trade deal? Um, you know, given, given the colonial past, 
uh, in India. Um, and given that India is, is of course, proximate to, uh, to Africa, to the Middle East, it can look north to Central Asia and it can, it can look uh, eastwards to, to China and indeed down into the Pacific. Does it even make sense for India to engage in, in, in any more meaningful way with the... India's looking to China. India's looking to China, it's looking to Singapore, it's looking to Africa, it's looking in Japan, it's looking in those areas. It's close neighbours. It doesn't need the West... Um, and, and the West is not adding value to what India is doing. And, you know, you can see that with, let's get it back to some technology. Amazon have tried to get a foothold in, mm-hmm. in India. They just can't do it. Google is struggling in India. Um, Facebook is nowhere in India. Um, India is building its own equivalents in the same way that China built its own equivalents. Uh, I, I just don't think that the West will get the footprint that they think they're going to get there. Um, fool me once. In my fault, fool me twice, you know, and and India will not be fooled twice. Um, there was and, a- and particularly under this particular government. Yeah. So uh, you know, we have Narendra Modi as the prime minister. Your listeners may know he's the leader of the BJP party, which is a Hindu nationalist party. They are no great fans. They d- they do not idolise a colonial past in India. Quite no. quite the opposite. And in fact, there are there are major civil rights concerns um, in India at the moment with the way that the Modi government is is treating particularly the is India's Muslim population. So you know there are also questions about Britain and our moral authority. You know, are we willing in our desperate rush to find trade deals to actually stand up for the kind of principles that we have stood up for in the past, and that being a member of the European Union actually gave us confident confidence to stand up for particular kind of moral rights and rights. I'm not holding my breath. Cameron was caught on Channel 4 in an interview being asked why Britain put forward the Saudi government to be on the UN Council for Humane Rights and refused to answer. We have funded the weapons into the Middle East that have gone to Yemen. We've got a proxy war that we're running in Yemen and killing. And people do not talk about this, and it really frustrates me that we naively sit here going, well, it doesn't affect me, no-one's been killed in Surrey, so we're okay. Mm. You know, Marlow, I can walk down the high street, we're safe. But we as a country are fundamentally killing millions in a proxy war that we're funding through weapons that we supply. No-one seems to want to talk about that. And it's... I think what we're seeing, I mean, you know, the, the, the expression where we talked about it briefly off-air, you know, take back control... You know, again, that, that has a jingoistic feel to me. That was, you know, take back control, which was close the borders, get the immigrants out, make it white, take back the empire. Bring. I just feel that we're going down this extreme right wing. And, you know, you talked about global Britain being a nice soft landing word rather than Empire 2.0. I have the same word with populace. Mm. You know, the populace. It's right wing. It's Nazis. But no, it's now called populist, so it doesn't sound so bad. Steve Bannon came up with that term, knowing fully well that by softening the blow... Because people don't understand what populist means, so it sounds okay, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It it worries me that people like President Cummings, who's running Boris and Gove, is, is, and, and like Steve Bannon was running Trump, are using words and phrases like, you know, £350 million or take back control. Mm. And they are, they are hoodwinking the British and American public into believing that these are nice, soft ways. And, you know, I, 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 I obviously I don't want to go on about mm. it, but, but in your opinion, being the expert, and I'm not the expert here, um, what... Do you envisage? Can you envisage five years from now? Are you are you able to give one year from now, two years? What what do you think will happen? 
Well, uh, I mean, I wish I could. I wish I could. I mean, in, in a way, it's almost easier to look 20 or 30 years into the, into the future rather than five years. Okay. Uh, because that then also forced you onto a global scale. I mean, we know that things like climate change are going to become you know, even worse. We know there are going to be hundreds of thousands of displaced people moving around the world. That's going to be a major global uh, security concern. Uh, we, we know that is going to happen, and we know that organisations like the British military are already projecting those kind of futures and are procuring new bits of hardware as a consequence of that. In a way, that's far easier to do than, than to know what position is Britain going to be in in just a year's time? Because that's all dependent on quite short-term and highly politicised decision-making that's going to be taking place in London and in Brussels over the next year. Britain's future is going to be, and it's, this is also going to be worked out in, in Washington and in Tokyo, because it will also relate to the kind of trade deals that Britain is going to be able to negotiate as well. But we don't even know the terms upon which we are truly going to be leaving the European Union Brexit, uh, your listeners are a smart bunch, they know this already, Brexit is not done. Brexit will not get done by either the, the 31st of January or by the end of this, this coming year. It's going to take far longer than that. For 31st of January is the starting point. It is the starting point. Yeah, what did Churchill say? This isn't the beginning of the end, it's merely the end of the beginning. And, and that's fundamentally where we are. Um, Britain's uh, departure from the European Union is going to be long, it's going to be painful, um, it's not going to go easily. There was never a deal that was in the microwave. Um, you know, there was no poverty ping or whatever. Um, Boris Johnson. I think it's bingity bongs. Bing, now, oh, bingity bongs. Right up to date. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it was never going to be as easy as that. So we need to prepare ourselves, genuinely. We actually need to mentally and psychologically prepare ourselves as a population for a long and very turbulent period um, of quite fundamental change that we're going to be facing um, in terms of us extracting ourselves from the European Union, which is going to be difficult. It's going to lead to significant job losses in this country um, but then also we need to content ourselves with the idea that with every trade deal that we negotiate that control that we have mythically taken back from the European Union we're going to be giving it away again because that is the essence of, of a trade deal you give away something of yourself in order to make international trade Smoother. Yeah, it's not a one-way. It's not a one. It's not a one-way thing. Um, you know, the European Union is a particular model for doing efficient international uh, trade. Um, we are. We have chosen that we don't want to do that. So what we're going to have to now become familiar with in the UK is the idea that you know every time we go to India, for example, and ask for a trade deal, they are going to ask for something back, and that that could be well, tens of thousands of visas, absolutely, every year to allow Indian people to come to the UK to work, to live, to send remittance remittances back to um, to India, and we're going to have to ask ourselves as a country: Does that fulfil the promise that was made in the 2016 referendum? Is that the vision that we had. Um, the thing is, the government will be compelled to accept that as, as a particular kind of model because we will be so desperate we will be so desperate for, um, for a, a trade deal that that will be the, the compromise, that yeah. will be the conditions that we have to, to work with. But the crazy thing was, um, and, and most people don't, don't, don't understand this, in the EU um, you had uh, open borders but you had three months in which to prove that you were financially independent and that you could retain a job. And at the end of that three-month period, you could be sent home, right? Now, Germany impl implemented that law, which was an EU law. Mm -hmm. France implemented it. Tony Blair 
chose not to implement that law and he allowed the open border policy where people just stayed partly they say that was political because people who are immigrants tend to vote Labour rather than Tory so it was a way of getting up the vote but secondly um, he just felt that that was the way of fulfilling the gap that we had in the job market Um, but famously the government has control outside of EU borders for immigrants coming in from Australia, India, Canada, and they've never controlled that. So why they think they're going to suddenly turn this tap off and on, and, and, and I have no idea. that it, it's, And it's really frustrating that people just don't listen to what's facts, because people don't like experts, um, Mr. Yeah, Goad. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so it's very frustrating. So, um, yeah, we can shout until the cows come home about this stuff. Yeah. I'm at that point in my life now where I think, you know what, just let it happen, because it has to happen. The pain has to occur for people to believe it. Now, whether that pain then reflects in more far-right-wing rhetoric, you know, blame the immigrant, blame someone else rather than blame the government, I don't know. And that's my fear. I grew up in, like, probably both of you, but I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, the height of the BNP and the right wing. And it's a pretty frightening world. And I thought that had gone, but it's coming back. And uh, I sadly think the next 10 years, we're going to see the rise of the far right much more than we have ever done. I think what concerns me... um Sam, as, as some of these things that Al's talking about sort of come home to roost, um, that I don't think there'll be contrition within the government to say, yeah, actually, we didn't hold all the cards, we weren't, we do like experts, you know, we got this wrong. I think it's going to be more and more blame. And I think to weaponize minority groups or foreign countries as being the ones that are in the wrong and not actually taking it on our own shoulders and say, look, this was a fundamentally stupid thing to do, um, we, we're probably only going to sort of sow more hatred and disharmony amongst community groups and I think that you know take it out on the polls or the Greeks or whoever it is um, they're being vindictive and it it always strikes me that if I sort of think around you know let's imagine we're in this scenario now but it was Italy leaving the EU and we were staying how courteous would we be to the Italians as a nation as a government in those post-Brexit trade negotiations you know, and, and, and I actually think that a lot of the EU member states have, have been so understanding of our chaos, um, shown us probably way more respect than we deserve in this whole process. And I think it sometimes I think we need to look at ourselves as a country and sort of say, do we like what we see in the mirror? Personally, I don't. That's why I wanted to do something about it. Um, you know, I'll get over it, but it, it it's... It's not a nice look, let's put it that way. So I think, you know, going forward, I'm sort of thinking, can I play a small part in building this sort of post-Brexit Britain that actually is liberal, it's open, it's internationalist, it's not little Britain? Yeah, Okay. so let's have a look at what you two got up to then around that period. So, um, realistically, the the, the general election was a winter election. It's not... We've not had too many of those. I think there was one back in the 60s that we had. so, obviously, you, as you said, Al, you became a PPC parliamentary perspective candidate for the Liberal Democrats. Um, when you both got together um, and sat down, now, when I said I'd help the local PPC here in, in Maidenhead, um, I was totally shocked by the, 
I, I, I would say, the unprofessionalism of the whole setup. Mm. It felt like amateur hours just turned up. I mean, I think, um, you know, probably somebody running a stage show could have done a better job. It was just simply print some leaflets, knock on some doors, hope that somebody responded, tick a few pieces of paper going, yep, we've got another one. And then on, on the actual day, pray to God that, you know, central office had made enough noise on TV that you got a secondary swing. And I just remember seeing emails going, yes, we've done this area. Great. What, what, what was the outcome? We don't know. And getting probably two emails back. It was just horribly 18th century mm. electioneering. That's all I could describe it as. Yeah. And yet they felt that this was brilliant. Now... How did you guys down in Surrey do it? Because please don't tell me you just went knocking on doors and prayed. Uh, I, I don't think I ever prayed for the outcome of the of the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the election. Oh, maybe I should have prayed harder. Maybe. Um, but we, cer- we certainly did knock on doors. We certainly, right. we certainly did use paper leaflets. To what extent? To what reasoning? Um, well, we, we handed out 250,000 leaflets uh, during the course of the election campaign um, because they still remain a fundamental form of political communication in the UK. And also, uh, the government supplies you with at least one of those leaflets um, entirely for free as part, of ele- as part of your kind of electoral... Okay. So you might as well use the budget. So you may as well use that particular budget in order to get that done. And you, you can, um, the, the Royal Mail, deliver that to, for you for free. So, you know, it's an important, it's an important thing. And people still like, particularly people who are, are still beyond the reach of things like Facebook and Twitter and social media and who maybe aren't as inured with technology as we are, they still like to receive a bit of paper through the post, although I think you can overdo that. But we effectively developed a kind of three-prong strategy. We had a particular challenge in Surrey Heath. Um, in the previous general election, the Labour Party had come second in Surrey Heath. There was a, a bump under that first Jeremy Corbyn um, election. Michael Gove looked on unassailable in in his lead and the Lib Dems in 2017 had come had come third um, I was only selected as the candidate for Surrey Heath in September I only joined the Lib Dems in in August um, and then there was of course a December general election so we had a huge mission on our hands um, in order to get my name recognized it's not like I'm a long-standing councillor in the area I didn't have a high personal profile uh, in the area so we had a lot of work to do so this this all fed into a three-pronged strategy. One, absolutely to use leaflets, and we developed a program of how we were going to deliver those leaflets and what those were going to do. So you actually sat down, tell me, and thought this through. Totally. Okay. So at, at the start, yeah, we had a, a brilliant, a brilliant campaign team. We had we had three campaign managers um, who devised, along with along with me, a strategy for how we could do as well as we could realistically could during this very short uh, election election period. Uh, and it was about getting my name out there, getting it recognised getting people to talk about me in an everyday kind of sense make make sure that I was absolutely in the front of centre of people's minds and one of the things that we know from psychological studies is you've got to have meaningfully engaged with somebody in some way at least three times for them to stick 
in your in your mind. So that was that was kind of our mission. How how many people could we do that with um, in and across uh, Surrey Heath? So leaflets were part of it. Social media was another, uh, both um, on Twitter and on Facebook. And then the third thing, just as traditional as the leaflets, were uh, the big orange signs that you may have seen in and around Maidenhead. Um, and we I had one in my front garden. You had one. Well, I'm delighted to hear it. Um, and and we got nearly 300 of those uh, up in and around Surrey Heath. And that was an unprecedented number of on-street bits of signage. And we thought to ourselves that if we can get people to to see those signs in people's gardens who had maybe never voted Lib Dem before or who had never been identifiable as Lib Dem voters before, then it would perhaps begin to create the conditions in which people believed that change was possible. Yeah. Because in Surrey Heath, with such a large Conservative majority, one of our main challenges was allowing people to believe that other people felt the same things that they did, and that the discontentment with the local Conservatives was actually far higher. Yeah, because Surrey Heath is well known that you could put a, uh, a blue sticker on a pig and it would get voted in Surrey Heath. Yeah, I, think, I think prior to the election, the it, was, joke. Yeah, it was about the 12th safest seat, I think, for the Tories nationally, Yeah, to give a idea of, I mean, probably this area is probably um, in the top 10, yeah, I would have thought. Theresa May is very safe generally here, yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, this really speaks to the, the challenge that we had. And people just assumed that no matter what you did, no matter how good an opposition candidate was, frankly, no matter what scandal uh, a, a sitting Conservative MP was involved in, that they would always get voted in because that's just the way that people voted. And we needed to break that presumption. We needed to allow people to believe and to understand that that their neighbours actually felt the same thing that they did, even if, even if they didn't realise that because people don't really like to talk about politics in many cases. So when we were doing our door-to-door canvassing and knocking on doors, we were hearing from people. Um, we, we, you know, Sometimes over 50% of people were saying, yes, we're going to be voting Lib Dem this, this time. But if you ask somebody on the doorstep, do you think that's a widely held view? They said, no, I don't, because this area is so true blue. So we needed to break down the presumption. Um, and between the social media, the, the leafleting and these orange on-street signs, we, I think, did that incredibly successfully. Um, I guess we can come on and talk about, though, how we did the social media. Well, I do. No, I mean, before we do, I mean, what did you put in those leaflets? Because, I mean, the ones here locally were just generally some sort of general headline. I mean, I have to say I wasn't impressed. Followed by a, a tick box on the back page with a please send it back to us in the post type thing. And it was just like, yeah. no it one's going to do that. No, yeah. we, we didn't We didn't do that at all. Um, and that's partly because we didn't have time to do that because it was such a short election campaign. We couldn't have done anything meaningful yeah. with that information anyway. So we, we rejected the idea of a, of a questionnaire. That's something that you can do if you've got five years when you're building up to a campaign. We, d- we didn't have that opportunity. Um, first of all, it was about getting my name and face widely recognised with a number of key policies. The first leaflet was largely based on national policy at the time, but actually, we didn't, on reflection, we didn't really like that very much. Um, one of the things that I think really defines what we did in Surrey Heath, um, as opposed to many other places, was that I, as the candidate, almost totally ignored the national picture. Right. Okay. I ignored the things that we were hearing from Joe Swinson. I ignored the things that were coming out of Liberal Democrat Party central office. And I fo- focused almost exclusively on things that were meaningful to local people. 
And I think that really resonated because, you know, Surrey Heath is a, a bit like Maidenhead is a very comfortable kind of place. It is largely affluent, although there are pockets of you know, more socioeconomic uh, challenge. But what you begin to realise when you, when you become something like a parliamentary candidate is that just beneath that very comfortable surface, there are real hardships and there are real challenges that people are facing. And that might be related to crime and, and the experience of crime. Um, there's a lot of um, very profound mental health challenges. Um, we, know, we know this generally, but it's when you confront it very directly or when it confronts you and when people confront you with it. Yeah, it, it the doorstep, you must have heard a lot of that. I heard a lot of, uh, <coughs> I heard a lot of that. And really tragic stories about the way that young people, adolescents, were unable to access the desperate kind of care that they, that they needed. Um, and so that became one of, our, one of the, the key issues that we, that we attempted to, to really highlight for people. And that was the terrible cutbacks that have happened in terms of child and, and adolescent mental health care across, across Surrey Heath across the whole of Surrey um, and, and, and that, that became something that we looked at. There were real concerns about overdevelopment in Surrey Heath um, as well um, and particularly in inappropriate places such as on floodplains. So the story Sorry, did you just read the local Lib Dem policies as well because they're exactly the same policies here. Oh, is that which right? Which is overhousing, oh, uh, lack of mental health facilities, schools, hospital. Yeah. I mean I, I think you could just literally jump the same policies into any area in, in Britain. I think they are yeah. the same, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe they are, um, but they're also the thing that I find is that they really resonated with people on the doorstep in a ways. I mean, clearly, the stop Brexit message was not a popular message. No, I mean, you know, hands up. That's the failure of the Lib Dems, really. It, it is, and and to be honest with you, I was I, as soon as that was announced at the conference that that was going to be the the policy, I felt very uncomfortable with the idea of just stop Brexit. Um, the policy actually was revoke Article 50. That is different to, in my opinion, and this is one of the yeah. things that I kept on saying, that is different to stopping Brexit. Uh, I think one of the reasons why we, um, we failed so spectacularly in, in negotiation, I think one of the reasons that Theresa May found it so hard to negotiate, and then Boris Johnson also, is because we were constantly against that Article 50 ticking, ticking time bomb. You know, we, we started the clock before we even knew our own negotiating yeah. position. It was a complete disaster. And I think what the Lib Dem policy was really about to my mind, was about stopping the clock and allowing for a period of calm reflection in which we as a country could regroup and, re and I, gather. I still think, I mean, as much as we're all Lib Dems and, it, it, you know, I think people have got so weary and tired yeah. of the word Brexit and, yeah. and, and this thing just going round and round the Houses of Parliament with nobody actually delivering anything mm -hmm. positive or negative yeah. it was just a, a stalemate that actually I think Cummings again you know coming back with you know let you know just get, get it done get it done was like yeah, whatever they, I don't care anymore just get the thing done you know they, they captured the mood I saw a programme the other night where a guy had a really chronic lower leg condition hugely pain and he, he opted to have his leg amputated to save, and, I, and I think it's a similar yeah yeah, it's a metaphor for that. Mm. that it's, just take the pain away. I know it's going to be painful. Just just chop yeah. the thing off yeah. and then maybe I'll learn to walk again afterwards and yeah. rebuild my life. And I think a lot of people were in that mindset that we I spoke to on the doorstep that just said, yes, I agree with you, but I just don't think I can live with another few years of this. And all we could sort of say was, well, really, we're now going into another 10 years. If you think this is bad, you wait till three years' time. But, but that message doesn't land. It's too complex. And back to Michael Gove's point, we've had enough of experts. And I think largely for a lot of people, he's right. You know, again, 
that must have been researched. I don't think he said that by accident. You know, I think all of these things, having studied the man quite closely, you know, I think all of these people are, you know, very little gets said by accident. You know, it's, they, they, they plan those attack messages and, they, and I think that's where you know, people like the Lib Dems sort of fall down because we don't have that infrastructure behind us to actually get those messages right. But you, you began know. to say that. I mean, Al said it himself. I, I ignored the central office messages and I focused on my local messages. Mm. And it's like, well, is nobody from central office organising this? Is nobody coming down and saying, these are the core messages? It just felt like, you know, Joe was sat there in central office going on to every television programme she could find. And that was all, that was the whole strategy. Just say that one thing. Mm. And because and, locally, I know um, we have a double edge issue one is that we don't have a locally organized thing in fact uh, you know i won't mention the people because that's unfair but we have councillors who sit on the local maiden head council who are only interested in being re-elected as lib dems for the council mm. and when i joined and i said well who's setting the message because we rebuilt a website we did things I said who sets the message i don't know no, no. Do you do it? No, I don't do it. No, do you do it? No, not me, mate. So I just started making stuff up and, and just then looking about... And it just seemed so... That's why I go back to my point. Yeah. It felt so disorganised and so amateur that I was shocked that this is what political rhetoric is. Yeah. So anyway, let's move on yeah. to a more interesting part. So the leaflets were one thing for getting you on awareness. Yeah. But this is really where I think you made a difference which is your social media strategy so talk us through what you use because again as i said we didn't really use one here locally okay um in terms of in terms of social media we needed we needed to do two key things we needed to support uh, the kind of policy messages that we wanted to promote but we had a financial challenge that we had to deal with uh, as well um because of the size of our constituency we were allowed to spend each party in surrey heath was allowed to spend about sixteen and a half thousand pounds um on the election you probably your your listeners will know that that is based on the number of electors in a, in a particular constituency so our eighty thousand eighty seven thousand voters translated to about sixteen and a half thousand pounds we had £500 in the bank as a local party. Right. But we also had a great asset. We had a, a, an amazing local person called Emma Kennedy. She is a kind of local celebrity. She won Celebrity MasterChef. She's a script writer for BBC comedy programmes. She is a, a multi-book you know, multi uh, authoring um, you know, expert on. I mean, she's she's just an all round kind of polymath, and she's also worked previously on comic relief. So she has she is used to raising big sums of money, and she set a challenge initially to try and raise fifteen thousand um, pounds. We did that remarkably easily. And what vehicle or mechanism did you use to raise that? Well, there was like the occasional, very traditional uh, Lib Dem thing of uh, lotteries and tombolas and, okay. and things like that. But I think more importantly we engaged in, in, online, in, uh, in online work and we set up a crowdfunder um, page and we we just kind of ruthlessly exploited uh, our, our opposition. Michael Gove is not a popular person. He's not popular with teachers. He's not popular in Surrey. He's not Probably with his mother either. Well, I I, I, I can't even comment on that. Um, <laughs> I don't even know if his mother's but, alive. I apologise if she's not. Um, but uh, so so we you know we, we created a we created a page and that and that 
or, or at least Emma did. It was kind of slightly arms, you know, slightly arms length. But you know, fifteen thousand pounds was raised. Then twenty thousand uh, pounds was raised, and and then by the end of the campaign, we'd actually raised twenty five thousand pounds, which was the most money that Surrey Heathlip Dems have have ever raised in in the history of um, of their existence. So you know, it was a really impressive thing, and, and Emma deserves a huge amount of credit, uh, you know, for for backing that campaign. Matt was heavily involved in that as well. He got himself banned from Twitter at one point in time. Well done, I Matt. Am I allowed to say that, Matt? Well, you have now. I have done. <laughs> it's quite nice, actually. Um, I'm, not going back, I'm not going back on as me. No, that's it. Oh, okay. I've, I've committed Twitter suicide as, a, as an individual. So oh, okay. That's but that's, but that's we raised a lot of money before I got banned. You need to tell me uh, what you banned. did to get banned. <laughs> um, uh, let's just say I was a little bit aggressive in my fundraising. Um, <laughs> okay. and, and I think many of those uh, responses were at mentioning Mr. Gove himself. Right. And I think probably a word was said. But, you know, you can you can rebrand your Twitter account to mislead the electorate and go As straight back on. Well, did well. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, little me in, in Surrey were trying to raise a few quid for Al to get him elected. You know, that seems to be crime of the century. So, uh, yeah, Twitter can... Um, do, do one as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I nearly said something else. Then. No, please don't. No. Honestly, they, Ofcom have got a big off button and they, that's why it's called Ofcom. Um, and they just turn you off. Uh, so don't do that, no, please. No, I, won't. Um, I like doing this radio show. Um, right. Um, so, okay, you've got 25,000 in the bank. You're doing well. Well done. What did you do with it? Well, clearly, we were still only allowed to spend the sixteen and a half thousand. Oh, um, party then at the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we're now well set up for the next for the next few years. Okay. Um, some of that went to fund the leafleting, uh, the leafleting work. A lot of that was spent on these orange boards that were going up around the constituency, which are both important technologies of, of political communication. Um, but the technology that we really invested in very heavily for the first time was uh, was Facebook and, and social media. Now, we know that there's all kinds of problems with the way that Facebook do ads and the things that they allow. Well, um, they seem to allow anything, and we'll cover that in the third part, but yeah. anyway, political ads-wise. Yeah, but, but clearly we all know that in the UK a lot of people receive political information particularly during election campaigns through through Facebook the um, the vote leave campaign in 2016 ruthlessly exploited uh, Facebook in ways that we the way that we know we didn't ruthlessly exploit it we used it I think in in really legitimate kind of ways and it was again to build up my name and face recognition to share particular policies to target particular kind of policies to particular people and to particular parts of the constituency and and in all of this, we were uh, hugely aided by an incredibly talented social media manager that we had working with us on a purely voluntary, voluntary basis called Julie Hode. Um, she, she works with us in Surrey Heath. She's part of our executive committee and she, she's just incredibly skilled and gifted at using Facebook in ways that allowed us to target particular bits of advertising to different parts of the population. I mean, one of the risks is that if you put out an advert too widely, then the kind of comments that you get back just undermine the value in you putting out an advert in the first place. And you don't want to be seen to be turning off comments because that then looks as though you're not being open and responsive. And you're responsive. not open to listening to feedback and etc. Yeah, Exactly. So it's about finding the right balance, finding finding the right audience. And I mean, Julie even managed to get her, her work was picked up by the BBC News uh, in one of their tech programs because of the way that she was uh, finding her audience. She used people, for example, who had uh, 
liked have I got news for you um, at, at one particular point on, on Facebook because she took the opinion that people who watch have I got news for you are perhaps kind of critical or cynical viewers of the news they might be more open to the kind of advertising that we were putting out at that particular time it was really clever stuff and the amazing thing was that I think it was Rory Kathleen Jones the, the BBC yep. tech correspondent he said on the programme I don't know what on earth is going on in Surrey Heath. This this is a really kind of low target um, constituency for the Lib Dems, but they seem to be spending an absolute fortune. The funny thing is, all of this advertising really did not cost us a fortune at all. It just looked like it did because we were being so targeted in the way that we were deploying um, the advertising material. Yeah. Okay. And... Um, well, okay, let's be honest. It, 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 did it work? I mean, at the end of the day, you didn't sadly get elected. So well, did it actually work? I mean, how do you know that all that time, that effort, yeah. that money mm. um, and that targeting actually made an impact? Or would the numbers that you got have worked anyway we, without you spending it? Yeah, we, we were there were a few hashtags that we were working with Yeah, um, around hashtag fresh start um, and get go out. So... Um, on election day, as we were going around, I was going around with Alan, people were actually sort of looking at him and saying, fresh start, fresh start. And that only came from our online communication. So that's a sort of a, a slight insight into it working. But certainly the messaging and the comments and the um, the feedback we were getting from opponents as well, just shaking hands and saying, your campaign was fantastic. And it does translate into the numbers as well in terms of the vote swing. So not all social media, but certainly... What was the result? Uh, we got 27% of the vote. That was okay. the highest ever vote for, um, from a second party in Surrey Heath history. That was 16,009 votes. That was an 11% swing to us. Okay, 16%. Now, um, it, was a, it was a 16% increase. Yeah, okay. swing. Increase. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I think an 11% swing yeah. to us. Uh, that was one of the highest in the whole country. Right. Uh, Matt said before that the that Surrey Heath was the the Tories' 14th safest seat. Um, it was something like the 450th um, target target in the for the for the Lib Dems. Uh, we're now in the in the top 60. I think we're a 55, 58 um, most winnable seat for the for the Lib Dems. Now that may might be more of a comment about the winnability of seats for the Lib Dems, but we have dramatically moved up the league table of potentially winnable seats. Now, given that Surrey Heath Surrey Heath voted 50.5 percent to to leave. Um, in the in the EU referendum, so in theory, it was a, it was a Leave seat, um, and certainly there were a lot of very vocal people who who wanted Leave, uh, particularly on some of the slightly more extreme Facebook groups um, on um, yeah, on Facebook, but. We did an amazing job. I think it was, and I think it was down to that triangulation. We made sure that the leaflet spoke to the kind of online material, and that the online material spoke to our our, our orange boards. Okay. When we come back, we're going to the news. But when we come back, we're going to find out more about what you did in Surrey Heath, and talk about how Facebook and ads will be working for the 2020 election. Marlow FM. 97.5 You're listening to Sam Sethi on Marlowe FM OMG Who gave him a show? Indeed, who did? Thank you, Rhiannon. You know who you are. Um, welcome back, everybody. My name's Sam Sethi, and thank you for joining us today again on Marlowe FM. Uh, I'm with two great guests. My uh, guest here is Dr. Al Pinkerton, or Al for Hi. short. Hello, how are you again? And, uh, and my good friend, Matt Hodges-Long. Um, now, we were just talking before the news about how, as a parliamentary perspective candidate uh, for the Liberal Democrats, uh, you and Matt, 
we're using social media, which is really what we want to keep it to. Mm. You know, I have gone slightly off off piece with some of my commentary, but the reality is that, you know, this is a business and technology show. So, you know, we're looking at how, I guess, in the 21st century, technology can be used to influence a voting election and, and, and make an impact. Because as I said, I'm, I'm not a great believer in knocking on doors and posting mm. paper. Mm. Um, and I hope, you know, that that will change. But you said that it was still very important to have that uh, analogue um, way of connecting. But the digital impact that you had... Well, I was just asking before, you know, could you see that you were talking about the digital impact was in the fact that, you know, you heard people repeating about your messages and that was one way of measuring. Were there any other ways that you measured the value of the impact that you made? I mean, was, were there, you know, what metrics did you put in place to measure success, I guess? I mean, there are the very basic metrics that you can see on Facebook and Twitter. You know, the fact that 30,000 people have seen your campaign video launch, for example, um, or that um, 10,000 people have received or have actively clicked on or have followed the call to action that you've placed on um, you know, a particular Facebook post. Uh, I mean, I imagine that, that big corporations are using far more sophisticated matrices than that, but that's really what Don't we Don't bet on it. Well, po- yeah, poss- possibly not. Um, you know, and, and the number of shares and the number of likes and, and that kind of thing. So it's that basic interaction information that, that was certainly one, you know, one element of it. Um, you know, but equally, as, as Matt said, it was then, it was then the very analog, verbal kind of feedback that we would be, we'd be getting, um, both positive and negative. You know, by the way, a lot of people writing saying, this is amazing. I've never seen so much work from a political party um, in Surrey Heath. You're, you're, you're blowing away all of the kind of complacency of, of the past. This looks amazing. Equally, I had a lot of personal communications from people r- deeply unhappy with the things that we were doing. Right. And uh, these, were, these were people who were not fundamentally happy with the things that we were saying. They were just unhappy that we seemed to be doing so well because they were opposed to our particular you know, policy oh, so position. Somebody here that held the Brexit view. Exactly. And they, they would never be persuadable on a particular point. So I think, you know, I think um, both the feedback that we got that was positive, the feedback that was negative, reinforced the fact that this was working. We had to acknowledge that in this particular ref- in this particular election, some people were always going to be unobtainable. We were never going to be, be able to persuade certain people. Um, but the fact that they were offering us that feedback suggested that they were that they were at least seeing and, and engaging with the materials that we were putting out. Well, my, my statement has always been: all racists voted Brexit, but all Brexiteers weren't racist. You might very well think that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you, no, and you, I, and I, I, and you I might be right. That, that is my view. If you were a racist, you voted Brexit. But that's it. Whether you started off with BNP, moved to UKIP, followed whatever, you voted Brexit and. What I would argue is that not everyone who voted Brexit, however, was a racist. Well, certainly, I, I got emails from people where there was some distinctly racist content, um, but a lot of people were contacting me who had voted Brexit, um, who who had other kinds of concerns, concerns that I actually thought that I could allay through you know a proper dialogue. But actually, one of the things that I found was that people were just not particularly open to dialogue in this election. They had very fixed views, whether they were you know, born out of a, a kind of latent racism or, um, or or they came from other places. It was actually a very difficult election to fight because people had had such fixed opinions in many cases yeah so okay um i go back to one question that i've always wondered though so everyone talks about 
the Cambridge Analytica effect or, or social media, the effect on voting behaviour. And I then look through my stream and I go, I didn't get one ad. Maybe I'm not targetable. I don't know. Maybe, but, and, but even if I was targeted, I don't think I'm influential. You know, in, in the same way, I was a, mm. a staunch Leave mm. voter and there was nothing that Brexiteers were going to say to me that was going to mm. convince me to switch. Mm. So I never, ever saw anything online, you know. I, if anything, the more more influ- influential was the medium of radio and TV for me because mm. there was a longer argument that people could put forward to me and that potentially either swayed me down a certain thought pattern but but online digitally a little ad popping up next to my stream a i never saw one and b i don't think it would have made any difference we did we didn't just do ads though so we were doing native promoted posts or not even promoted posts posts but um around i don't know whether it's the same here but around where we are there are a lot of very active sort of village and town facebook groups um that some of them get pretty out of hand certain areas of the constituency are pretty sort of far right in terms of the people that inhabit them um others are much more i live in one of those sort of, right okay much more balanced um so what we were looking at doing is getting our supporters to actually push our messaging into share it into those groups now some of them it's against the rules so we had to ask a few people to sort of sit on the naughty step for a bit back to my Twitter experience. Um, and then others are happy only on a certain day of the week or whatever. So we got to know the moderators and this is where Julie was very good. She knows the moderators of most of those groups. So we were allowed to put things in. And at that point, you start seeing a real density of in- interaction within a particular village or town or part of the constituency. Um, so it wasn't just about the advertising side of it. It was about sharing content and engaging in a conversation and we had a lot of philosophical debates about one of the things I want to say about trolls or negative comments um, I'm personally far more comfortable with the negativity because I just think it amplifies the, the reach and I think that most people naturally are quite moderate so they will see that that person is being extreme in their views but they've seen your content so that was more of a, a a Twitter thing um, so we, we had those discussions all the way through if anything was blatant then we would we would hide it um, and it you know it landed and people were sort of saying to us and they were getting engaged and to your point Sam around not seeing it in your feed what we did see people were telling us is that oh my son saw your Facebook posts and showed me on his phone or whatever right. okay. um, and now I you know I want to talk to you about a certain issue I, you've got my vote that kind of thing I can remember that happening in, in a village called Lightwater quite clearly um, so it's, it was anecdotal because we all came into this with 10 weeks to D-Day um, we didn't have the chance to build the proper infrastructure that we would need so looking forward um, we now have anywhere between, let's say, two and four and a half years until we have to do all this thing again. So we will have the right infrastructure in place. We will have the finance in place. We will be a lot clearer on our strategy. And part of one of the things that I do with the exec now locally, um, it's all about strategy. It's about we need a proper plan. We need to execute it religiously. Um, what we do know is that our local opposition are pretty poor at campaigning because you don't have to campaign if you get it handed to you on a plate. There's no fight. So you haven't built over years the infrastructure to be able to fight. Yeah. So it's all to play for as far as we're concerned, but that's, that's my view. Do, do, do you, is, is Surrey Heath demographically an older or a, or a younger uh, demographic? 
Uh, that's actually a really good question. I don't know in terms of the age profile. Uh, I mean, I think my instinctive feeling is that it's probably slightly towards the older end of the spectrum, and that's largely because we don't have, in Surrey, for example, a large university. So we don't have an institution that's going to be drawing 20,000 younger people you know, into Canada. Sorry, right. the Tories will make sure they're all, all away from home yeah. so that they can't vote. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, that, that was one of the challenges, of course, during <coughs> this particular election. That's what they did with my daughter. Yeah. They, she had to try and do postal voting, and then it became really complicated so yeah. yeah so they lost a lot of young votes yeah i think what you know matt was just saying before was really interesting because it, it actually it raises the specter of facebook and what facebook allows you to do now now clearly we were using effect i called them ads before but effectively they were just boosted they were just boosted posts um and, and I mean, that can be great. You know, that's great for, you know, if you are a local activist or if you've got a particular campaign that you want to try and, and advertise. There are lots of advantages in being able to boost posts so that so that more people than might just be on your page can see them. But of course, what that relies upon is you behaving ethically with the kind of message that you want to put out. And I genuinely believe I will put my hand in my heart and say that everything that we put out, I was I was content with ethically um we, we didn't we did not make false claims we didn't overtly try and appeal to people's emotions uh, particularly negative uh, emotions um you know we, we put out i think really solid well argument bits of of political material you played fair i think i think we did play fair and did that work well, um, it, it, clearly the Tories weren't playing fair. Well, it, it probably di it didn't work. I mean, we could have done other things. We could have gone really extreme. I wouldn't have been content with that. I don't also think that would have fitted with the values. But isn't that what the, the Tories are relying on? Um, well, pro probably, probably. That you, that you would hold the middle ground, be ethical, not go for it. And, I mean, I don't... We did, we did a bit. We... We we were I, we were hard hitting we were hard mm. hitting at at times but but with it but within I, I think actually very strict parameters we certainly did not reproduce the kind of deeply emotional deeply trouble advertising that certain people would have seen during the vote leave campaign in 2016 for example uh, I mean I remember very clearly during the 2016 uh, vote leave campaign the, the Brexit referendum my mum would keep calling me up. She lives in Scotland, um, and she would say, Al, "Al, but I'm just really concerned. I don't know which way to vote. I'm really concerned about Turkey," and and I wasn't hearing anything about Turkey on the news, particularly or That's on the famous Nigel Farage um, picture. Yeah, and, and, th and then the picture. But she was talking about this months in advance of that, and um, you know, and I said, "Mum, where are you getting this from?" And she couldn't quite tell me where she was getting it from. But she said, "What about the 88 million Turkish people who will suddenly get access when when the Turkey joins the EU?" And you know, I'm a professor of geopolitics. I know that the Turkey are not joining the EU anytime soon. And I kept on telling her that, but I couldn't work out quite where this was coming from. Turns out, she told me afterwards, it was all coming through her Facebook post because the Vote Leave campaign and Vote and Leave.eu were targeting women of a certain age with this Turkey message yeah. um, because they were they were basically saying, look look at what the reality could be if we stay in the EU. Eighty eight million, and the message was clear. It was deeply racially problematic. Mm -hmm. Eighty eight million rampaging Turks coming to the UK, taking your jobs, living in your communities. Pillaging your women and and there was that kind of slightly sexualized uh, yeah. undertone um as well and uh, but i wasn't seeing it because i wasn't part of the the target audience that was being selected by very clever people working for those two political campaigns so i was never seeing it and of course therefore we weren't generally seeing it so therefore we weren't 
challenging that. And it was just a message that kept on rather insidiously creeping into people's minds. And that's one of, of course, the main dangers of, of Facebook. Because only certain people are seeing things, and if, and if people like an advert like that, of course, it sends a little bit of data back that then leads to more and more extreme advertising being sent to people. And ultimately, this is the real challenge that we have with Facebook. It's about unscrupulous people willing to put out unscrupulous, highly emotive messages, um, but then also getting some feedback and delivering more and more extreme messages, pushing people further to the margins of society, both on the left and to the right. And fundamentally, this is one of the main challenges that Facebook presents for us as a nation and us as a global community in the future and that is that we seem to be becoming more and more polarised in our opinions and and algorithms are driving that. Yeah, it's algorithmically red or blue. I mean, that's where you go. You get in a bubble. Absolutely. And it, you know, it, being in the centre ground, being reasonable, does not produce strong data. Does not produce strong data. It also does not produce the kind of emotional triggers that organisations, um, political organisations, can can push upon. Um, and so people are pushed more and more to the extremes. Um, of well, we saw society. this with Britain First before yeah. they were banned from Facebook. They would put up a picture of a spit with a simple, do you love the Spitfire? Someone hit like, because of course we all love Spitfires, you know, it's Battle of Britain. You hit like and or you reshare and suddenly they've now got you and now they start putting their bile through you. And, 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 and they grew a two million audience in their group and people couldn't understand were they two million racists no what they were doing is simply getting you to say like to a soft message and then once they've got you to like it they put a hard message against it yeah that was all and then they would go go around look we're very popular two million people support us so it's a very simple me mechanism to doing that i mean i think <laughs> Boris is, is basically, as I said, a Cummings puppet, and uh, as Trump was a Bannon puppet. And, it, you know, look, Hillary Clinton was cleared this week for not having the issues with her email server. But that's too late. That's like the Sun headline telling you one thing, and then after it's gone to court and there's a retraction on page 77 saying, actually, sorry, it wasn't true, no one believes it because no one's read it. Yeah. And, and mud sticks. And so, you know, lock her up, Hillary Clinton, all the lies that Trump came out with, people vote, and then afterwards the truth comes out. We've got the same now with the 350 million, um, all the things that the Tories did in this election, you know. I mean, the one, I couldn't believe it, they were brazenly sat on GMTV, having been shown the video they doctored from GMTV, and literally sat there going, nope, wasn't me, Gov. It was a Snoop Doggy Dog, you know, defence. Yeah. Wasn't me. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Yeah. It was like, it was, <laughs> and it's there. No, we didn't do that. It's not what we meant. And yet, I don't even care. I think what people did was they just ignored it. All of this stuff became irrelevant. And yeah. that's scary. Well, I think the real danger is, is that everybody thinks everybody's lying. So... Well, you all say that. You're all disingenuous. Exactly. You know, all politicians so are the same or whatever. Well, well that, that's the sort of the Lance Armstrong defence, isn't it? Yes. Uh, which, you know, they were all doing it. I just was the better liar. Yeah. Um, but therefore, the playing field was level. The worst liar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, as time took, you know, took a while. So... You know, I think I think it, it is very difficult, but you do have to. I think you've got to have integrity as well, and that's yes. the thing. I think is um, there's no point in winning too ugly. I don't think, but, but you do but have to be a bit. Is I don't know if you'll win. I, I, I fundamentally believe, unless they make it a law which says you cannot lie in public office, hmm. uh, and you will get jail time or you get whatever, 
then I don't think they'll change because they've now been proven to see that lying pays off. It does. It fundamentally wins you elections. It's been done in America. And, you know, it brings us on to Facebook again, I'm afraid. You know, mm. um, I don't know if anyone saw the Sasha Baron Cohen uh, presentation. If you haven't, go on to YouTube. It's, what, it's probably the best presentation I've ever seen in the last 20 years. He literally stands up and explains how under Goebbels, if they had Facebook, given Facebook's current policy allowing political ads with no... Uh, checking, fact-checking, and lies can be pushed. He said Goebbels under Hitler would have been putting out messages about the Jews, and it would have been allowed. Mark Zuckerberg would have allowed it. And he stands there today, it came out, um, I think, Matt, you sent me the link from the New York Times. He literally is saying, even after review, um, and knowing what the 2016 election influence of the Russians was, he's saying, nope, we're not going to change our policy, we're going to exactly allow you to lie, again, in political ads on Facebook. Now, why would they do that? What, what's the benefit to Facebook? I don't get it. Any any well, explanation? I mean, I, I don't claim to know the, the inner workings of Mark Zuckerberg's mind. <laughs> no um, one does. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, it sounds... I mean, cl- clearly finance is a big thing. Uh, I mean, Facebook is a massive organisation. It has a huge influence on our lives. But it, Do you know their share price hit an all-time high this week? Right. Their revenues hit an all-time high this week? So all of this stuff about them lying... And whatever, they, they, it doesn't matter. I think that's he, because they've just guaranteed yeah. one of their main sources of revenue income, which is which, exactly. which is paid, which is paid advertising. Yeah. Because you know, for all of the influence they have, Facebook is not actually a terribly profitable uh, company. It's not like Apple, you know, for example. So they need to keep defending the the income streams that they've got. Um, and and this is this is clearly this is clearly one of them. Uh, I mean, it might also be a, a kind of a, a play in a in a longer term kind of set of political negotiations that there are going to be with the American government on particular you know, bits of subject matter. You know, there might even have been some strong arming um, from within the American administration uh, to, to keep political advertising of well, this that's, kind. That's my view. I yeah. think I think Trump's called him into a private... He was caught out again, Mark Zuckerberg, not declaring that he had dinner with Trump in private, and it came out later that he did. And I think the DOJ has been hung as a sort of Damocles over his head. Look, mm. if you don't do what we want, we will start to put the DOJ to break up WhatsApp, Facebook and Instagram. And well, there so, certainly have been talks, haven't there, about breaking up threats. Facebook into, into its yeah. component parts. Uh, whether those threats will now disappear now that these promises about political well, advertising strangely, have... The, the commentary in the tech press has is, is gone quiet on that. Right. There's nothing being said about it anymore. Matt, you, you, you can back me up on this probably. It's just gone. It was like there was this whole couple of months where, you know, they were talking about, well, we're going to have to go to a secure back backbone so that, you know, the one messaging client between WhatsApp, Messenger and, you know, Instagram. So that if they did break us up, we'd have to say, oh, it's too hard anymore. Mm. But now no one seems to be doing anything about it. The trouble, the trouble is, though, I think if you... If you move to that level of encryption as well, they lose their value in terms of context. And what would that do to their business? It would probably kill the business, you know, because you're going to have to start looking at a different monetization model. Um, I'm not sure when people, if they're presented with a £5 a month charge to use Facebook, how many people would drop off, and then you just end up in that spiral of decline. That's what Andrew Yang, the presidential candidate, wants. He says Twitter, Facebook and all other services should have a subscription model. That would get rid of your trolls, that would get rid of the advertising, would get rid of all of the other issues that... Because fundamentally, Twitter and Facebook aren't bad platforms. They're just 
implemented badly in the way that they affect social uh, cohesion. Albeit with a traditional payment model, that would track everybody, but then maybe if they had a virtual currency, they'd be okay. So 2020, it looks like um, uh, it's going to go... uh, I can't see Mr Trump not losing, actually, strangely. Uh, What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I agree with you, actually. Uh, I mean, I think the Democrats are obviously inflicting a lot of damage upon one another right now as part of these these primaries. Um, I think, for, you know, for every, for every new atrocity that Donald Trump seems to create, it seems to just boost his popularity within, certainly solidify his popularity within his base, and it doesn't seem to adversely affect his popularity um, over, you know, overall in the US. I don't understand it personally, but then I'm clearly out of touch with the psyche but, of the American people. Boris has the same thing. He lied to the Queen. He was caught in court doing it. He had the affair. He had the money for the funding, that woman. The, he's held back the Russian report. I mean, the list goes on. And yet he's Teflon. That's right. The, the standards in public life uh, seem, to, seem to have deteriorated to such an extent that there is literally no, there's no um, furrow left unploughed in, in, amongst our political leaders. I mean, when you think that, what, 10, 15, 20 years ago under the John Major government, that, you know, this, the, the smallest sniff of an affair could have let, would have led directly to a resignation. Uh, and pages and pages of frontline news uh, on, our, on our tabloid and broadsheet newspapers, you know, now the, these things just don't seem to matter at all. And I think there are big questions for the British and American electorate, um, because ultimately we need to decide what standards we want to hold our political leaders to. And I think we actually need to have a kind of a, a, a profound conversation in the UK, and I think the US should should do the same thing, to decide what kind of calibre of people do we want leading our countries? What, what are the standards that we need to hold people to? Yeah. And actually, this should be beyond party politics, because every single political party leader should be held to those same standards. And I think some level of truthfulness in public life, some level of truth, truthfulness in referendum campaigns and in political campaigns should be a minimum standard for for the start of that conversation, I would have thought. We could go on and on, but uh, we've sadly coming towards the end of our time. Now, uh, I'd like to thank you, Al, for coming in. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Matt, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.